Hello, this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 31st, 2021. It's 1.38 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'm here with Dylan and Yasmin, who are representing their respective graduate student worker unions at NYU and Columbia. Um, I wanted to give a chance uh, for each of them to introduce themselves and say a little bit more about yeah, so I'm Dylan. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. I'm a 6th year PhD student in biology. Uh, and I study neurodegeneration. And I'm a member of the Graduate Student Union at NYU, which is GSOC, Graduate Student Organizing Committee. And I'm also a member of the Academic Workers for a Democratic Union Caucus, or ALDU. Thank you. Yasmin? Hi, my name is Yasmin. Uh, I am a graduate student worker at Columbia University, uh, a third year PhD student in the History Department and a teaching assistant in the same department. I am a member of Graduate Workers of Columbia, United Auto Workers 2110, and also a member of the Academic Workers for a Democratic Union Caucus within our union. Well, thank you to both of you. And yes, I mean, thank you for correcting the pronunciation of your name. I like instantiated my own uh, Ethiopian Muslim childhood onto the pronunciation. So thank you for clarifying. Um, and so I wanted to share, so one full disclosure is that We Be Imagining is associated with Columbia University's the American Assembly and Insight Center. I do know that the Insight Center does pay, I believe, above what you guys are even demanding in terms of pay. And that kind of speaks to the level of agency that these departments have to improve the quality of life for graduate students. Um, but I wanted to share a little bit about why I decided not to cross the picket line for the Columbia uh, law school symposium called Strengthen Bonds about abolishing the current child welfare system and uh, celebrating the 20th anniversary of Dorothy Roberts' book, Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare. And so we had received, uh, all the panelists had received an email from the organizers asking us about um, to weigh in on what we would like to do as a collective in response to the graduate uh, student workers' demands. And so I said, I will not be crossing the picket line. I think we have to ask ourselves, what is this movement to abolish the family regulation system if we're willing to discard, disregard the struggle of other marginalized people in service of Zooming? Personally, I think this is a very problematic precedent to set with longer term ramifications. Um, and this was in response to one uh, possibility, which was just to use different Zoom links not associated with the university uh, rather than rescheduling it. And just I've been thinking about the political right and the academic institutions of power have taken COVID as an opportunity to enact repressive austerity measures that are highly coordinated. It is troubling if the left fails to extend solidarity to those on its side. Academia has been complicit in expanding all forms of policing against black and poor communities. This can only be disrupted if poor and of color graduate students who must work and strike to gain fair wages are able to participate in knowledge production. We are digging our own grave if we cross the picket line for a webinar to avoid inconvenience. And I'm very happy to say that with widespread support among the panelists and Dorothy Roberts and the organizers, the event was rescheduled, um, waiting for resolution of the union's demands by the university. But beginning with you, Dylan, um, could you say a little bit more about kind of the scope of the demands being made? Oh, sorry, I apologize. Yes, I mean, if you could uh, start with what are the scope of the demands at Columbia? Uh, first of all, thank you, Khadija, for being instrumental to the postponing of this event, which really helps us out when it comes to, um, you know, making an impact, right? So what we are really trying to do is shut the university down. And a big part of that is us, you know, going on a work stoppage as teaching assistants 
assistance and research assistance, but also another way to do that, especially because we are in this Zoom university moment due to the pandemic, is exactly this kind of uh, postponing and canceling of, of online events. So thank you for doing that. In terms of the scope of the demands we have right now, um, so what we are remanding is a living wage, uh, a neutral arbitration for uh, workplace discrimination and harassment cases that is in the form of third-party arbitration, so an external process uh, that is not going to take place just within the university bureaucracy. Uh, additionally, we are asking for better health care, that is dental insurance and uh, lower premiums, especially for people with chronic illnesses. Uh, and we are also looking for uh, undergraduate TAs and RAs, as well as master's TAs and RAs, to be recognized as part of our uh, Part, as part of our unit. And then our final uh, demand at this moment is, of course, uh, the demand to basically to have our rec full recognition as a union in the form of uh, a, no, a no, sorry, I'm, miss, uh, I'm messing this one up. I'm going to come back to you on the final demand in a minute. Uh, but basically, I think I would say our most important demands right now are better health care, a living wage and neutral arbitration for discrimination and sexual harassment. And is it still true that the university has been withholding pay and stipends? So at the moment, what we have experienced so far is indeed a withholding of our uh, wages, which is for most PhD students who are on nine-month appointments, that is like a lot of TAs, for instance, who TA in the spring and, and fall terms, we have seen our wages cut, meaning these are wages that are paid twice in the month, so in the middle of the month and at the end of the month, we've not received the end of the month pay so far for, for uh, March. Um, we have also been told by the university or rather th threatened by the university that they are going to back charge portions of our stipend to us. So in, in most cases and throughout the course of the bargaining um, process and period, the university has maintained that the stipends are you know, a form of scholarship and that they are not uh, that they should not be considered wages, that, you know, that therefore they should not be purview to uh, contract negotiations. But of course, in this juncture, when we are on strike, they're now saying that this is wages and therefore they are going to ask back for portions of what they've previously called a scholarship from us. Um, so a lot of people are worried that we are going to be charged a thousand, two thousand dollars in the span of a few weeks. Um, on our student accounts, which is of course, which is another problem, because for those of us who are international students at Columbia, if we have a balance of over one thousand dollars, this means we cannot register for classes as students, and we might be at risk of losing our student and therefore our visa our visa status in this country. So so far, we've not experienced a back charging of the stipends yet, but this is something that we are exper expecting. Um, down the line that might happen. And when you say the university, is this like per each department? Is there some kind of centralized aspect of the administration that's communicating with the union? Who exactly is responsible for making these decisions? So a lot of the threats that, you know, the threats about pay docking uh, are coming from the central administration. And they are first iterated at the bargaining table by the university's lawyers. They uh, employ a law firm called Proscar uh, and Rose, I believe. Uh, and then later on followed up by administrators, central administrators from the university. In fact, we've actually had uh, several faculties 
of departments push back against pay cuts. They've uh, the communications department, the classics department, and the history department faculty have signed, uh, uh, have released letters in opposition to the pay cuts that the university is threatening. And we are expecting in the coming days more departments to also oppose these pay cuts, especially the stipend backcharge. Um, so this is not this is something that the central administration is doing, the withholding of pay, and it's something that is, for the most part, unsupported by the faculty of respective departments. And when this is being communicated to you, either by the attorneys or by the central administration, what is the justification? And not just for withholding pay or th potentially threatening the stipends during the strike, but just not meeting the demands, given the level of reliance on graduate student labor within a university. Right. Thank you for this question. So a big part of the university's rhetoric in denying us a living wage, for instance, has been this like COVID-19 austerity narrative. Um, you know, they're using, for instance, the fact that President Bollinger and central administration have taken a pay freeze because of the pandemic, which is, of course, not what happened everywhere else. You know, we saw in the cases of Brown, Dartmouth, Stanford, the presidents of these universities taking pay cuts at the level of 20 to 25%. That didn't happen at Columbia. President Bollinger is still making the same as what he was making before the pandemic. Uh, but they've been using this rhetoric of, oh, we are in a moment of austerity to deny us a living wage. A lot of us are making after taxes below 30K. And a lot of us also are living in what is supposedly subsidized university apartment housing. Um, but the rate of increase on rent is 3% in a year. And the university is at the moment proposing only a 2% salary increase uh, yearly in their proposal, uh, which is, of course, below the rent. But we also have to pay dues when uh, we have a contract to our own parent union. And there's also inflation. So when you add up dues, that's 2%. Inflation, which is 1.7%. And then also the rent increases, which the university controls those rent increases, right? We are at the level of that's three, five, six point seven percent. But the offer we're getting from the university is for a two percent wage increase. So, and and they're using the COVID austerity uh, narrative to to deny us what would effectively be wage increases that are in tandem with our rising living costs. And this is just one example of the many ways in which they're pushing back against our demands. Yeah, it has very uh, Versailles vibes because I was just looking up in Bloomberg, they reported in 2020, but it was 2018 numbers that Bollinger's compensation was 4.6 million. I mean, it was under a pay freeze so that they couldn't increase it beyond 4.6 million. But this feels very like let them eat cake. Yes, exactly. I mean, this notion that, you know, taking a pay freeze at, you know, $4.6 million is somehow, you know, the reason why you cannot give someone who is making 30K a small raise is frankly absurd, right? Like, as if the fact that faculty and central administrators, oh my God, they, they you know, even we cannot even give them any pay increase. How could we possibly give graduate students who are making below a living wage in New York City a pay increase in the middle of the pandemic when they absolutely desperately need it. That's what's mind boggling, I think, about the state of our negotiations with the university right now. They are not coming from a point of understanding what is needed, and they're not coming from a point of meeting these needs. And they're really only concerned about the university's pocketbook, which is making 
from our end uh, as rank and file members, the entire process, we're really just disillusioned with it, to be honest with you, uh, the entire process of, of bargaining. Um, and, you know, we're, we're looking at ways to escalate at the moment. Thank you, Yasmin. And Dylan, I wanted to ask you, so NYU uh, began balloting for a strike in the midst of uh, Columbia grad student workers already in the, uh, under, under siege with their strike. Could you say a little bit more about the demands at NYU? How similar or how different are they to what um, Yasmin described at Columbia? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the question. Um, so, I mean, in essence, a lot of what we're asking for is the same. Uh, our bargaining history is a little bit different uh, here in, in NYU and the grad student union here uh, compared to at Columbia. We've been, we're actually negotiating our second contract. We had our first contract uh, from 2015 to 2020. Uh, and that contract expired in August. Um, we started negotiations for this new contract. Um, we tried to start them back in the spring. There was the pandemic, things got pushed aside. Um, and then we started, you know, nine, almost 10 months ago now in the middle of the summer negotiating first, negotiating over like the impacts of uh, COVID, um, you know, the ways that it impacted us and, you know, forced us to be working from home, forced us to you know, incur costs in terms of Wi-Fi technology that we needed to now bring into the home so that we could still teach our classes. Um, and NYU denied you know, every single one of our impact bargaining demands, uh, including demands for uh, you know, personal protective equipment if we needed to go into, you know, as people were going back uh, onto campus, they denied all of it. Um, but in, you know, in essence, again, the, the demands uh, that we're asking for uh, in, at NYU are, are the same. You know, we're we're demanding a living wage, uh, a, a real living wage, that when we are we're limited to working 20 hours a week by NYU, uh, and also international students on visas are restricted to working just 20 hours a week. Uh, you know, in their visa restrictions, so we're asking for a uh, an hourly wage that allows us to earn a living wage. Um, we're you know asking for free and expanded um, healthcare. Uh, you know, no premium costs, reimbursement for out-of-pocket costs, reimbursement for co-pays, uh, prescription costs, um, you know, durable, durable medical devices, anything that comes along with it so that, you know, people who have chronic conditions aren't, you know, spending an entire paycheck on uh, their, their medical expenses. Uh, we're asking for NYU to cut ties with uh, the NYPD to get cops off campus. Uh, this is one of our central demands that we're pushing really hard on, and it's one that NYU has refused to negotiate with us on, uh, basically refused to even uh, start a conversation about. Uh, we have a host of uh, demands directed toward international students uh, in terms of legal assistance, subsidized legal assistance, tax assistance, uh, and NYU has rejected all of those demands. Um, we want definitions for power-based abuse included in our contract to expand uh, you know, the many ways that we as graduate students in this precarious position, you know, below advisors and supervisors, you know, uh, facing uh, routine power-based abuse can grieve this and go to neutral arbitration over it. Uh, we want paid vacation um, and paid leave, paid family leave, support for workers who have families, uh, support for childcare, uh, housing assistance, uh, I mean, the full gambit, you know, we're trying to make 
our situation, our precarious situation, livable in New York City, uh, which is not something that is you know true for grad workers. Um, you know, here in New York or really anywhere in the country. Yasmin, you explained that, like how stipends are dispersed and that the average salary is something like 30000 Do they have like an hourly breakdown of how much grad students, uh, grad student workers are making at each institution? So we don't, so a lot of the graduate students do not have hourly pay, but we also have workers within our unit who are receiving hourly pay. Um, so $15 an hour is about what a lot of hourly workers are making at the university right now. Uh, that, that is like undergraduate MA, TAs, and RAs mostly. And what we're what we are pushing for is actually twenty for them to make twenty eight dollars in an hour. Um, so that's another demand that we have. And would you, would you say that's similar at NYU, Dylan? Yeah, I think we're we're trying to push that a little bit further. Uh, right now, grad workers at NYU are making twenty, and we're uh, you know trying to almost double this because to earn a living wage uh, in New York City. Um, you know, you need and and being limited to working twenty hours a week, you need to substantially increase the hourly wage in order for, for people to afford rent. Uh, so we're yeah, in a similar bar ballpark there. For for people who are not within academia, um, this might not stand out. But one of the things that immediately stood out for me when you said twenty hours is, is that I wonder how many people are actually working twenty hours. I mean, I taught. Uh, I'm often not on Zoom, but I taught a class at Cornell last summer. And I just found that it was so much more labor intensive, first of all, just being on Zoom due to COVID. And the TAs for our class had to do an extensive, I mean, there was just much more communication with students and technical issues, um, having to maintain WordPress. And so I imagine that even if you're getting uh, $15 an hour, that that can easily become $5 because in reality, each one of those hours is really like three hours. I don't know if that aligns with your experience. Um, for, for me, I would say definitely so. I've seen my workload as a teaching assistant nearly double in the during the pandemic because so when you're facilitating discussion sections, let's say I'm a TA in history, right, which is the main thing that we do as TAs uh, along with grading, when you don't have the in-person interaction to keep, you know, keep the students engaged, what you have to do is all sorts of also um, online visual aids to help them, you know, grasp the material and to also to get them to participate in discussion. So I found myself making all sorts of like slides with questions and and uh, and images, et cetera, and like putting up primary sources for them to discuss in the form of slides. So this was not preparation I was having to do in earlier years of teaching with a, when, you know, when we were just in person, but I felt the necessity of, of doing this, which of course increased my work hours, which also for our cases is, is supposed to be 20 hours in a week. But I was finding myself, you know, spending maybe 30 hours plus uh, on, on preparation for teaching over Zoom. Uh, and this, in addition to the facilitation I had to do for the larger lecture, uh, because the professor, of course, cannot just call on anyone out of a 200-person Zoom call when he or she cannot even see, you know, the faces of the students all together in one place. So the, the TAs also had to take on this extra labor of becoming sort of, you know, webinar facilitators twice in a week. And that is also sort of invisible labor to the university, I would say, that we are not getting paid for any any extra. So our workload has doubled our pay is not nearly where it needs to be. And one of the things I just wanted to add was that one of the reasons I was so excited to see this strike happen, I mean, not the consequences as far as people's immediate financial hardship, but as far as like politically, why it felt so important is that grad students are both the lifeblood of the academy, but also I just noticed this pervasive passivity. 
I mean, like, I think that we're all, you know, globally, collectively exhausted and overworked and overwhelmed during this kind of layers of pandemics, but everybody is not equally impacted. And it's a little bit shocking to see the most precarious uh, labor sectors within the university being the ones to lead this resistance. I see a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of individual faculty, and I appreciate Yasemin, you named, you know, a few specific departments that have spoken out in support of the strike. But why do you think it is that more um, tenured faculty and also members of the administration haven't been more vocal and pressed this before it even came to a strike? So I do think that at some level, a lot of the faculty who are also experiencing pay freezes are buying into the austerity narrative of the university to the point where they think it's legitimate to deny wage increases to graduate students living in very precarious um, circumstances. But that's not everyone. And there are actually a lot of faculty who are behind our demand for neutral arbitration, which is a demand we share in common with NYU, for instance. We have over 300 faculty members at Columbia who have signed a letter explicitly calling for third-party arbitration because they don't want to be on these panels where they themselves have to be judging potential cases of sexual assault against, uh, you know, sort of leveled at their colleagues. And and they don't want to be in the position of, you know, becoming arbitrators of these cases, which is actually what the current current system is doing, is making them do. So they a lot, there's a lot of faculty who are in favor of the arbitration demand. But in terms of the um, compensation demands, a lot of faculty we have today, I think... Look back and look back at their own days as graduate students, which of course unionization struggles had barely begun, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Which is interesting to note because you know we are not in a political climate where you would think unionization would be would be a big thing, but we actually are seeing a lot of new movements for unionization and new strikes propping up. But I think there is also this sort of innate comparison. Uh, in the faculty's minds, thinking back to what the conditions were like when they were graduate students and thinking, oh, you know, our TAs and RAs are doing much better now. But of course, the costs of living have gone up so much more, you know. Um, so I don't know if it's really warranted the kinds of the kinds of comparisons they're making. I mean, I, I completely agree with, with what Yasmin said. And, um, you know, I, I think I would just add that um, there's... I, I sense that, like there's a lot more idealization of maybe what the academy what the academy means uh, for a lot of faculty in terms of seeing themselves as mentors and advisors to us when you know in, in many cases I mean in most cases they're our bosses and seeing our relationship to them the power dynamic between uh, grad workers and our advisors and our mentors that you know is a is one of labor and one of you know that it's extractive and we're um, doing research and doing work to fund grant proposals and you know bring money into, um, you know, research projects and then, you know, bring money into at large the university, you know, that this is a, a, a labor uh, relation, you know, one between a, a worker and boss. And they don't, I think they, they don't want to see themselves in that light. Um, and uh, that can be difficult. And I, I totally agree that, you know, many of them also buy into the sort of austerity logic that the university uh, you know, puts out and says, you know, we need to cut department budgets, we need to hold department budgets for years. Um, and we did a lot of work, you know, through the pandemic, uh, we were asking for universal extensions in, in our funding, 
you know, because of the pauses that happen to our research progress, um, to extend funding for a year, you know, for every for every single uh, graduate student uh, at the university, um, and a lot of departments said we don't have the money to do this. So we, you know, basically took NYU's own financial reports and repackaged them in a way that said, look, the university is reporting they have a lot of money. They're proud of this. They want to show their their shareholders. They want to show, you know, the board of trustees that they're doing well financially. Uh, and they they put this information out, and it's there also for you to see that they are doing well. So, you know, the universities want to claim, uh, you know, that they need this these austerity measures while at the same time also project that they're doing well, you know, so they can't have it both ways. Um, and, you know, it's just, I think, a matter of uh, sharing this information and, you know, getting, you know, uh, sort of negating that austerity logic. If I might add to this, another, I think, crucial paradox in this moment is that we're being told that particular schools within a university that can be Columbia, that can be Amaru, have money, have funds, but then others don't. And somehow there is no structure to redistribute wealth within the university between schools. So for instance, I'm in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. A lot of the TAs in that, that teach undergraduates are, are in GSAS. Um, but ours is supposedly the poorest school among the other schools. For instance, more professional schools like the law school, uh, the engineering school, etc. And we are being told constantly that GSAS, Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, does not have enough money to raise the compensation of, of TAs that teach undergraduates. But at the same time, our work is perhaps the most central to the mission of the university. You know, without teaching, we just become a research institute, right? Like it's not a university. I mean, you can have amazing kinds of research done that uh, in institutions that do not have the mission of teaching, but at the same time, I think the mission that Columbia, for instance, highlights and and puts at the center of it, its messaging is this kind of liberal arts education. But somehow, you know, the the mission is, you know, taking a back seat, or rather, you know, it's still very much in the messaging of the university, but isn't worth the kind of money that they are asking undergraduates to pay for this education. So this is what's very confusing for us. You know, if, if our work is at the center of the university's mission and messaging, why isn't there a structure to redistribute wealth amongst schools within the university so that we can get paid adequately? Um, and part of the, I think, uh, pushback from the faculty in, in more professional schools to to our current sort of uh, current demands, but also to unionization more broadly, is coming from the fact that these schools are much better funded, and they are actually not wanting to to distribute some of the wealth that they have to schools that need it most within the university. And so we are seeing a more political problem here of of you know what is what should the distribution of wealth within the university and within academia look like more broadly. Well, that's really helpful. I think for people outside of the academy, they're definitely, and Dylan, you mentioned this, this like romanticization of the university still is like maybe excluding as an ivory tower, but also this notion of like knowledge production. And, you know, there's definitely a lot of toxicity and power plays that happen. And in a minute, I want to kind of scroll to the need for external arbitration um, and kind of the level of sexual assault and other forms of violence that happens among uh, people in the university. 
But on the other hand, there's so much <clears throat> agency and self-determination uh, that people still have within the university as compared to like a big union that I'm uh, thinking about right now and in tech labor organizing is thinking about the Amazon warehouse workers. And that just feels like their level of autonomy is so much less than what a lot of people are facing in the university. But I was wondering if you guys could speak uh, towards the impact of COVID-19. And the reason why I think this is so important is not just the increased cost incurred when the home all of a sudden becomes the workplace, but also that particularly NYU and Columbia have relied heavily and played a role as like real estate uh, in New York City. And this has been like huge in shaping the relationship with the broader community as this, you know, eminent domain and like forced evictions. And so we have this moment during COVID where all of a sudden those kind of revenue streams and assets assets were jeopardized. And then on the flip side, teaching became more important than ever because now parents are still being demanded to pay full tuition, but everybody's taking classes on Zoom that take up more time, but have this kind of questionable value that hasn't quite stabilized yet. And so if you could each, in whichever order you prefer, speak to kind of the impact of COVID-19 on this context in which you're organizing. No, it's a, it's, I think it's a really good question. And it's one that I, you know, I, so I, I work on campus I, in a, in a research lab. And so I'm, I've been here, um, you know, coming in person since, I don't know, June, July. Um, and, you know, it, it, it is stark to see that like, there are so many buildings here that are shut down because there's no in-person presence. Um, and that, you know, classrooms are being used sparingly. Uh, and it, it does, you know, sort of make you wonder what, the future of this looks like, and you know, in the in the background of this, actually, almost like looming over uh, the Washington Square campus here at NYU, is this enormous building project that NYU has. At, uh, I think it's at 170 Mercer, um, that is part of their huge expansion uh, in the village, uh, and so they're investing a ton of money in uh, in further, you know, in more real estate while a lot of it is going unused. Uh, so, I mean, I don't, I don't know what their plan is for that, but they, you know, they've also expanded their real estate, uh, presence globally, you know, and it's really, um, extractive and, uh, you know, ways that, that gentrify communities around, uh, across the world and, you know, exploit workers. Uh, so, I mean, this, this trend is, I don't think they have any plans to, to end it, um. And then, you know, with regard to moving things online, uh, I think it just it, for them is a way that they expand their footprint, uh, you know, even further in, into sort of like the digital world and taking the the resources or the the you know the intellectual property of of teaching and and hold on to it forever. Uh, you know, and, and, you know they're going to archive the. the the teaching that's happening right now over Zoom and and use these resources, uh, you know, exploit them as much as they can. Um, So, I don't know. I mean, in in terms of impact on our organizing, uh, COVID has been, in some ways, it's been difficult to, to get around, but it's also sort of helped to bring people in. I mean, people were pissed off in the way that the, the university responded to the pandemic. Uh, and there was a lot of energy there and, you know, you can, that energy can last for so long, but, you know, one way that it's, I think it's been good is that a lot more people can be a lot more involved in, in union organizing in ways that they maybe couldn't, if they needed to show up in person to a meeting or, you know, um, take time out of their day to be somewhere at a certain time, uh, you know, now 
you can be involved in this organizing process from anywhere. Uh, so it's, it's had its, its benefits as well. One thing what, that we did uh, when it was becoming clear, uh, you know, back in March, uh, about more than a year ago now, when, when the pandemic was hitting New York City really hard, was that a lot of us were going to have to stay or won't be able to leave New York because of um, what stay-at-home orders and whatnot. And had those of us who were not already were already not able to afford rent over the summer because some for those of us folks who are on nine month appointments, like I said, we do not get um, wages or regular payment of salary over the summer. So we are just given a small stipend of four thousand dollars. It was becoming clear that we would not be able to afford rent, uh, especially for those of us living in supposedly subsidized, I would say, university apartment housing by Columbia. So Columbia, as you know, is is perhaps the biggest gentrifier in New York City, and it buys up a lot of um, a lot of buildings in Harlem through the use of eminent domain, gentrifies them, and has a very extractive relationship with the neighborhood that it's in, um, and you know supposedly engages in sort of like community building and whatnot, and you know tries to employ from the community, but we see what's going on you know it's clearly you know more third wave coffee shops that are opening up in the new campuses that columbia is building and the kinds of people that are employed there are definitely not long-standing residents of, of harlem um but more importantly i think uh so when it became clear that we were not going to a lot of us are not going to be able to uh afford rent we're not going to be able to sublet because you know this is the height of the pandemic nobody's willing to sublet somebody else's place that they don't know or or live together with them furthermore you cannot really move in or out of an apartment um we urgently founded a tenants association so this is what happened in the spring of last year in tw in 2020 and this was the first time to to my knowledge in the last 20 years we actually had a tenants association uh, of people living in columbia university apartment housing and we had a rent strike that uh, garnered over 100 strikers. In the context of the number of tenants that Colombia has, this is rather small, but we in fact were able to secure a rent freeze for the current academic year, the 2020-2021 academic year. So this is the first year we haven't had a 3% rent increase, which I think is a massive win. And we owe that to uh, you know our tenants association, our efforts rent striking, but also to a sort of unauthorized spring strike that also took place uh, in response to sort of you know the emergent COVID nineteen financial pressures exerted on graduate workers. Um, so right now um, we still have a tennis association. We rent struck for over four months, um, and a lot of us managed to get. So 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 those of us who are the most vulnerable, perhaps we for them, we managed to get some of the rents waived or, you know, what the university was offering was a sort of refinancing uh, of of rent. But what we really pushed for was a rent abatement, you know, something to tw to the extent of 20 to 30 percent rent decrease. Uh, we didn't manage to get that, but we did manage to get a rent freeze. Um, and I'm. We're hoping that with the contract that the rents, year-round rents, will become affordable to us. But if not, we are we are we might be looking at another rent strike down the line. Thank you so much for sharing that uh, that example, Yasmin. Because 
I was just thinking about uh, Mark Fisher's capitalist realism, how he describes uh, the dominant characteristic of advanced capitalism right now is the sense that nothing is possible other than what exists right now. And so I think it's really important for people to hear examples of when there has been successful organizing and what success looks like and that it's not, it's not necessarily abstract. I mean, in fact, it's like how Fred Hampton says, a politics of like hunger and housing. Um, people need their basic needs met. Um, and so the other aspect of the question that I had about COVID is in some ways, and a lot of people have discussed this, it um, made more visible pre-existing kind of social inequalities. And then on the other hand, I think there's like a renegotiation of the social contract that happened with COVID-19 in the universities. And given the level of reliance that they have on graduate student workers, do you see any opportunities, not just to have your own needs like uh, better met, like the basic qualities of being able to like stay alive and live in, in New York City, but as far as kind of what we, this arrangement, the like budgetary and like economic arrangement of the university have you as a collective, like within the unions, have been have you been thinking about what that could look like um, as a larger vision? So one thing that we have been pushing for is a direct use of the endowment towards the emergent needs of the graduate worker population. And this is something the university keeps on saying, that they cannot dip into the endowment, that it's not a pool of money, even though we know from the financial statements of the university in previous years that there's actually a cash component to the endowment that is usable in this way. Um, so one of the things we've been doing uh, is to really push back against this narrative of, of the endowment as this like untouchable sum of money um, and that, that nobody will get like any any portion of, you know, at the end of the day, what is an endowment for? It's to it's to ensure the the sort of continued existence of the university and what in, in how form can the university continue to exist if it cannot pay its graduate workers who do the majority of teaching. Um, so I think this has been somewhat of a revelation to a lot of us who didn't really know much about the financial aspects of how the university has run before uh, to think, you know, to, to ask ourselves, what can the endowment do for us? What does it mean? Uh, and, you know, uh, is, it a, is it a fund that can be used towards these kinds of emergency financial needs of those who make the work of the university possible? I mean, I completely agree with that. And I, you know, I think there was a lot of energy around this exact question, uh, I think, across a lot of universities and across a lot of uh, graduate student unions um, in response to the pandemic in terms of like, okay, this is the emergency that we thought that the uh, that these endowments were sitting around waiting to be used for. And, you know, we are asking desperately, like, our progress is being halted by this. We, you know, we, we are facing economic pressures like we've never faced before, trying to hold on and, you know, continue paying rent, um, you know, sharing um, living spaces with people who, you know, are losing jobs, ourselves losing, you know, additional support. And, okay, we, okay, going to the universities and saying we need this support now and them coming back and being like, oh, no, 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 this money is untouchable. And, you know, in the exact way that Yasmin said that, Yasmin said that this is like, we, we know the way that the structure actually exists, that there's unrestricted funds in the millions of dollars, you know, in the billions of dollars that can be used and they choose not to. Um, so why is that the case um, other than trying to force us and maintain us in this state of precarity. Uh, and 
I think it's exposed this reality for a lot of people, uh, the pandemic and this focusing in on like, you know, what is behind the curtain in the, in the academy. Thank you. No, it's really horrifying in light of, you know, at the height of the pandemic, we were all desperately searching for information about the virus. And, you know, even more recently with the vaccines and can it be trusted and like which brand is the best and um, getting just information about our families and other places uh, in the world, particularly for international students. And we saw how much like mis and disinformation there was, especially in light of like uh, journalism outlets being gutted out and then decentralized and privatized onto things like Substack. And just the, there's such a critical role for like knowledge production for society. And the fact that they're basically starving the backbone of that through not meeting the demands of the union is horrifying. Um, I have, we have about like eight more minutes. So I have two questions. One is um, around the arbitrage and uh, kind of, if you could say a little bit about some of the like toxic experiences that happen in the university, because frankly, for non-academics, it is really shocking to know that it's kind of a mob mentality a lot of times. And it's very difficult to hold people accountable, particularly if they're in positions of power, either administration or tenured faculty. Um, and then the last is I just wanted to give you guys a chance to plug anything that you want people to pay attention to that's going on with the union and the uh, hardship funds. Um, okay, so the question on arbitration. So this is a fight that NYU and Columbia are fighting in common and that I believe we will win. Um, what we're really fighting for is third-party neutral arbitration for cases of workplace discrimination and harassment. At Columbia, where I am, uh, there is this thing called the Equal Opportunities and Affirmative Action Office, which settles or rather sort of is the court for these kinds of harassment cases that take place within the university. But of course, the, the kinds of people who judge these cases are university bureaucrats and sometimes faculty, and they represent to us, to our, in our eyes, the, the interests of the university in keeping these cases under wraps. So we find that there is uh, that these that having a an arbitrator, or rather, not an arbitrator, but having a an adjudicator of these kinds of cases be an agent of the university is, you know, by default, a compromised position. Because we know that currently 95% of the cases that are filed within the EOAA procedure are not resolved in the favor of the complainant. That is, they are not resolved. 95% of the cases are not resolved in the favor of the survivor of harassment and discrimination. And this we take to be a clear proof of the fact that this is a biased procedure, that the existing procedure is not adequate to resolve these kinds of cases and to settle them in a fair and just way that you know does justice to these survivors. And this is why we really want the option to arbitrate. So what we are really pushing for in our contract at Columbia right now is that we're not saying, you know, we need to get rid of this existing procedure altogether, although I would like that too. Uh, but we are saying in the event that, you know, survivors or let's say complainants are not satisfied with the results of the existing procedure, that they have the option to go to arbitration afterwards. So that if, if someone who, you know, goes to the EOAA with a case of harassment, let's say from, they, from their PI uh, or you know, their advisor or some other professor that they have to work with, 
um, they they go through the procedure. It's not resolved in their favor. They feel that the result was biased. Uh, that they feel that they have been done been done injustice. They have the option to go through an external arbitrator. Um, this is what we are campaigning for, and we are campaigning for it really hard. And we have a lot of su- support from faculty on this. Um, yeah, and and I think this is a key demand for unionization of graduate workers' struggles everywhere because we see that other workers at the university have actually have 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 access to this kind of recourse. So all the other unionized workers on our campus, aside from graduate workers have already the right to go to arbitration on these kinds of issues. So what we're really asking is to just be considered on par with the other workers on campus and to have the the, the same access to real recourse that they have. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the fight is largely the same at NYU, and we're looking to expand also, uh, you know, beyond um, definitions of, of harassment and discrimination to include power-based abuse. Uh, because in so many cases, you know, the, the power imbalance is the the root cause of the harassment, of the abuse that comes down on on graduate workers. Um, And there is no existing structure or definition in which to, you know, bring these cases to the university and and have them, uh, you know, be basically heard at all. Um, So having a clear definition there so that we can bring these to uh, third party arbitration is is essential to, you know, to try to find recourse to try to um, address this enormous issue in, in academia. Um, are there any final thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners before we close? Yeah, right. So right now at NYU, we're in the middle of a strike vote. Uh, so we are voting to authorize a strike, giving the bargaining committee the power to set a strike deadline. Um, if NYU doesn't respond to the pressure of the strike vote if they don't respond to the, you know, pressure of of a strike deadline and we do go on strike, um, then, you know, we will have a hardship fund set up in the same way that Columbia does. Um, So right now we don't have a link to share, you know, for that. Uh, There's a pledge that, you know, we're sending out to grad workers right now so that they can pledge to donate to that hardship fund. But right now I want to urge, you know, if you're listening to this, you're from uh, NYU, you're grad worker that, you know, the workers at Columbia who are having pay withheld, uh, you should donate to their hardship fund. And I, I want to say thank you, Khadija, for you know bringing us together in this podcast and for giving us a platform to talk about our collective struggles. Um, I also want to say to anyone listening that please donate to our hardship fund because you know the very real threats that Columbia is making, not just about docking our our monthly salaries, but also asking for portions of our stipends back, which in some cases have already been spent on, you know, basic necessities, is really, um, we don't want it to take a toll on our movement. And that is why we have a hardship fund. We are doing really well with fundraising, but we could definitely do much better. And this would be the kind of thing that enables uh, workers to feel confident and secure in continuing to strike. Uh, So I would encourage anyone listening to donate to our hardship fund as well. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is the We Be Imagining podcast. You can find the GoFundMe link for the Columbia Student Worker uh, Union in our show notes. Um, Please write us at webeimagining at gmail.com. And you can check out this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, whichever your favorite platform is to listen to. That's it, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.